Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hoopsology Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best, as you know, in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped recently launched the Ultimate Men's Hygiene Bundle, the Performance Package. Join over 7 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code HOOPSOLOGY at manscaped.com. The Performance Package 4.0 by Manscaped has arrived and all man is a game changer. A huge shout out goes to Manscaped for hooking Matt and I up with the Performance Package. Inside this package, you'll find a lot of useful items. You'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer that you've probably heard of before. You'll also find their new Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer. You'll find Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner. Don't sleep on those products, gentlemen. Performance Boxer Briefs and a Travel Bag. And for my bearded brethren, and I know there are a lot of you out there, be sure to check out the new Beard Hedger, which is a tool that makes managing your beard so much easier. 20 different instantly adjustable length options. No more messing with multiple clips with your trimmer. It's a really slick and ingenious product get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code hoopsology that's h-o-o-p-s-o-l-o-g-y at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code hoopsology unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with manscaped we thank manscaped for supporting the show in this edition of Hoopsology, Justin and Matt welcome author of the book Across the Line, tales of the first black basketball players in the ACC and SEC, Barry Jacobs. Barry's book discusses the first black basketball players that played in the ACC and SEC, and we get his insight into the creative process for the book. Then the hosts get his take regarding the rise of NIL in college sports. You don't want to miss this discussion. Please email your questions to hoopsologypod at gmail.com and follow us on all social media platforms for our latest content. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are a proud member of Underdog Podcast. And now, Barry Jacobs. He is the author of the book, Across the Line, Tales of the First Black Basketball Players in the ACC and SEC, revised and updated. We welcome Barry Jacobs onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Barry? It's going pretty well, thanks. How about you? Going pretty well. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it and really enjoyed your book. And I think it brings Good. to light. It's appropriate just because of March Madness and it's the time of year. Um, just the history of just the game of basketball. That's what our podcast is about. Is just not only covering just the mainstream headlines of basketball, but also just the culture and just the major figures behind it. So um, just with the first basic question, just because the book um, brings the reader into struggles behind the many pioneers of the ACC and SEC um, who are African-American, who um, just wanted to play the game of basketball, but also had to deal with many um, struggles in terms of equality. So uh, what was just the creative force and motivation behind the book? 
I was curious. Uh, people didn't know who these guys were. Uh, it seemed to me that they had made a sacrifice in order to pl play, especially here in the South. And uh, I wanted to see what I could find out. And then once I started talking to some of the players, I realized that as, as if, if you think about it, it's logical. Sports is a uh, vehicle for talking about other things, which is why I've always been interested in it. It's, it's entertaining, but it's also illuminating if you start to use it as you guys do uh, to talk about other things. And in this case, you pulled the thread and it was about the social setting that these colleges are in and how long they took to, to actually decide, okay, we, we have to integrate because that's the law, even though we don't want to. And then how guys dealt with this when there was no language for, for between black and white at that time, as far as, okay, what's going on with you? Or how could we help you? Or where are the girls? Uh, none of that was, had been worked out. So it was in a way, they really were pioneers at all these different levels. And I just thought it was fascinating. They were the kind of the lower case Jackie Robinsons of, of sports. Through just their, their struggles, um, just trying to get on the court, did you find through your research that a lot of these athletes' passion for the game of basketball was diminished just due to all just the racial, racial inequities they had to face? Or was that passion fueling them just to, you know, compete onto the court? How they balance that? You know, I think their original intention is just to play the game of basketball and just enjoy it. But at the same time, like you said, um, they are being pioneers, and that was not probably their original intention. So how they balance that in terms of their love for the game, but at the same time, just, you know, kind of being pioneers to, you know, generations that are benefiting through just their struggles now. Well, some of them didn't even realize they were going to be the first black players till they got there, which they resented. And so from then on, it's kind of a struggle to feel like you can trust who your coach is or who the administration is because nobody told you. And as uh, Pete Johnson, who was one of the first two black players at Maryland told me, if you're the first, you have to go through all this stuff. And then the guys who come after you have it easier. I, I think a, a lot of the players uh, maybe enjoyed their the game or their teammates, but they have they were pretty alienated from their school. They were pretty alienated from the fans. Uh, not only on the road where people would yell all sorts of things at them, throw things at them, pull the hairs on their legs. When they, Some players wouldn't take the ball out of bounds, for instance. If you're chasing the ball and you're going to go into, into the stands and people are going to take a quick shot at you while you're out of sight of the officials, you don't go for the ball. <laughs> uh, it, it's a survival mechanism. So they, they kind of had to figure all this out as they went. But there were also cool things like when Billy Jones, who was the first uh, black player in the ACC, was in the Sugar Bowl Classic with Maryland in 65-66 season. And they ate in some New Orleans hotel. And then 
in Louisiana, blacks and whites were not allowed to play against each other in, in competition. But people started coming out from the, uh, the back, from the kitchen, one at a time, the black people who were working there just to shake his hand. That's how much it meant to them that he was there with all these white guys. Or when Wendell Hudson went to, to eat in the, uh, the cafeteria at Alabama, where he was the first black player, he went to get a snack and he sat down at a table by himself and here came Bear Bryant to sit down next to him. And he was terrified. He didn't know, well, you know, what am I going to talk to Bear Bryant about? He said, but after that, everybody was nice to me. So, you know, people did make efforts and that helped, but I think there was this general sense of where do I fit in? The coaches didn't really know where they fit in. Very few of them thought ahead. Very few of them thought, okay, if, if I tell the players to go get, here's some meal money, go get a meal after the game. Are they going to know that this city has been segregated forever and they're not going to welcome black people? Or if I, if I stop in a motel on the way to a game, I better call ahead. A couple of people knew that. Dean Smith, CM Newton at Alabama, um, John Guthrie at Georgia. Most of them didn't think about it. It was just, you know, it was just all their players. And so, the players themselves tried to protect each other. That was a nice thing. The, the white players tried to stand up with and for their, the, their black teammates. Barry, curious just to get, um, you know, your, your insight on the kind of wave of how this progressed, not only in ACC, SEC, but the comparison across the country as well, because, um, and, and I mean, either of you guys correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Will Chamberlain played 56 through 58 at Kansas University and then was drafted to the NBA in 59. So you had, um, you know, a very big name and other big names in the NBA um, going on simultaneously and even before this era that you discuss in the book in the ACC and SEC, can you explain was, um, you know, the after effects of Brown versus Board of Education, was that near instantaneous in other regions of the country in comparison to ACC, SEC? And how did that rollout look like? It wasn't near instantaneous anywhere. There was resistance mm -hmm. everywhere. The majority mm -hmm. of states had segregation even into the fifties, they just, it may not have been as codified. Uh, the first black player who played in the NBA was Willie Cooper, who played at Duquesne, I believe. And one of the, one of the Mississippi teams was supposed to play them in a tournament and they withdrew from the tournament when they were already there because it was against the rules for their teams from their state to play a team that had a black player. They asked wow. the school to keep Willie Cooper out, and he refused. But that happened uh, at Maryland. I I forget the name of the quarterback at Syracuse, but he was uh, Asian. And they Maryland asked him, could you please leave him out of the game? And Syracuse said no. <laughs> and um, so it was going on right along. And a lot of the players from the South were going to schools in the Midwest. 
because that was where they could go and be accepted. But even at a place like Kansas, John McClendon, the Hall of Fame coach who uh, coached at uh, uh, Tennessee A&I and North Carolina Central and was the first coach to win a national a black coach to win a national championship and in integrated competition. He was an undergraduate at Kansas. And he told me that when he got in the pool, everybody else got out. So it was, it was pretty universal. Um, and it did move faster places and it even moved faster depending on the administration of some schools and some states had really rigorous methods to keep black and white students from not integrating, even though they said they were integrating. They called the freedom of choice. And then the, the white parents would choose not to go to the dilapidated black schools where they only had one fourth or one tenth of the money to, to keep the schools going or to put in books or to have buses or anything like that. So it, it was just a hodgepodge. And it didn't really start moving until the 70s. And that even sounds, then, you could argue it hasn't moved yet. Hmm. And it sounds like, you know, primarily it's it's legal and funding pressure. Can you elaborate on that? I mean, were schools written directly, visited directly? I mean, um, you know, how was that pressure applied that kind of got the ball moving a little bit more? Well, one way is the federal government uh, was not going to give you research grants unless you were integrated. And so you, you had a choice as, as a, an institution of higher learning. Did you want to get the money or did you want, or did you want to uh, stand by your supposed principal? Um, that's what happened at Clemson when uh, Harvey Gantt went to court he was attending Iowa State, but he was from South Carolina, North Carolina area, and he wanted to go to a local school. So, and Clemson's a good uh, engineering school. So he applied, went, had to go to federal court. And that's where the whole incident of, um, that we were just talking about a few years, where uh, the Confederate flag was on top of the state capitol in Columbia, South Carolina. They didn't put it up during the Civil War. They didn't put it up until Harvey Gantt was admitted to Clemson. Then they put it up to say, you're not welcome. We, we still hold our Southern values uh, or Confederate values. And um, you're really not welcome. So it, it was the other thing that changed is that if you wanted to compete, there were all these great black athletes. C.M. Newton won like four games his first year at Alabama. So he went to Bear Bryant, who's the athletic director, and he said, can I recruit black players? They're all around us here and nobody's recruiting them. And he said, Bear Bryant said, yeah, recruit away if you want. And within a few years, Alabama won the SEC title with an all-black starting five. You never think of that it would be Alabama, but it was, which is kind of ironic. They're a number one seed in the tournament now. But, you know, uh, George Raveling, who was the first black assistant coach in the ACC and worked for uh, Nike for a long time, uh, 
he was an assistant at Villanova and he, and he went down South where he could get all these great players that nobody else was recruiting because he was a black guy and he got it. Uh, and Villanova was really good because they had really good players. And it, you know, that helped change the game too, is you had the sudden influx of players who played a different game. And I would also say that because those players came into the game, we now play a game that's not at all like what was played by the white teams. This is much more a game, the modern game that the, the black schools played uh, the, the, coach at St. Augustine's in, in Raleigh, uh, Harvey Hartley told me something, and it sounds just like Nolan Richardson at Arkansas in the 90s. He said how we played was 94-40 smoke them and smother them. You, know, you, you run, you hit the boards, you be aggressive. Uh, you, you play a game, it's not just throwing the ball up like, like the stereotype uh, the unfair stereotype that Texas Western blew a hole in in 1966, but it was a different kind of game. And once you started having players who were used to playing that way and you let them play that way, everything changed. You mentioned Texas Western and, and I have to ask, my dad was actually growing up in El Paso at the time that that team won the title. Um, how impactful was that, that they, especially that they directly beat Kentucky in that title game? Did that have, you know, you mentioned bringing in the most talented players and many of them being African-American. Uh, but on top of that, you see the title success, um, was there, you know, a ripple effect even through the ACC and SEC based on that? Yes, and there was actually a ripple effect that led to Texas Western because in 63, well, 62, Cincinnati repeated as the NCAA champ with three black starters. People don't talk about that mm -hmm. anymore. In uh, uh, Loyola, uh, they called it then Loyola of Illinois, now it's Loyola, Chicago. They won the national championship in 63 with four black starters, but people mm. don't talk about that either. And by the way, 63 was when uh, Mississippi state players had to sneak out of the state to play in the NCAA tournament because somebody got an injunction. It was against the law in Mississippi for blacks and whites to compete on the same field or court. And, just like I said before, they had forfeited tournaments rather than play against the team that had a, a black player. Well, they were going to have to play in the first round. They were going to have to play Loyola. And some legislators tried to get a judge to, to file an injunction. And so they sneaked out of the state. The athletic director left first and the president and then uh, Babe McCarthy, who was the coach. They all took separate planes. Then they set the reserves to the airport in Starkville to see if they got arrested. And when they didn't, they sent the team. And so the, the 60th anniversary is tomorrow. So, so you could say, well, boy, we've sure come a long way, but Mississippi is still, still not the most friendly place. Uh, Jackson, Mississippi, the legislature just passed a, a law that um, the Capitol police are going to have sole jurisdiction around, around the Capitol in the um, city 
where it's predominantly black. Uh, and they don't get to vote on who that is. That, and they don't have any control over who that is. The legislature does, which is, as you might imagine, in Mississippi, a pretty conservative, white, Republican uh, group. Of course, the Republicans were the Democrats in the 60s. The people who um, made the ridiculous statements, everybody from George Wallace to James Eastland, uh, You'd be amazed. Part of why I enjoyed doing this book is because there's other things going on in, in the society at the same time uh, that related, like George Wallace getting 43% of the vote for president in uh, Maryland in 1968. Pretty amazing. Uh, things like that, or, or the things that people said. You wouldn't believe the things that people said, and it's for those young men, 18 years old, and as one of them, Craig Robinson, who's first black, one of the first black players at Tennessee, he was he grew up in near Appomattox, Virginia. So he was in the in, in a farm community. He was embarrassed to be out in public in in shorts. He felt like he was, you know, he, he felt like you know, it's 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 too revealing. Uh, but he 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 adapted uh they all adapted one way or another some of them though never went back to their schools um when i wrote my book some of them had no idea that other people had gone through the same things um that there was because you know we didn't have any of the instant communication we have now and the media preferred not to cover some of the stuff. In fact, in the 2000s, uh, the paper, I think it was the Nashville, Tennessee, and no, it was the Lexington uh, newspaper. They apologized to their readers for having purposely avoided covering the civil rights movement. Wow. Um, you brought up that, that story about a lot of the players not wanting to go to the universities or a lot of tension. Um, I think what comes to mind is that the Fab Five, um, in terms of how they were treated by Michigan and just um, a lot, even though Jawan Howard's currently, he's coaching there, so there's still a lot of tension between that legendary team and that university. I just want to ask you, do you think will come a day where a lot of these universities will acknowledge this history? Because um, I think it's very important. Or do you think they're, they will always kind of be kept under the rug unless there's books like yours that, you know, really brings to light these stories? I think that it's the, the, the schools realize that it's, it's good for them to recognize the African-American players. When, not until my book came out, did Duke recognize C.B. Claiborne, who was their first black player. It, and and when, it, when it came out, they did it quick before the end of the season. I had interviewed his, his daughter, who's a doctor. She was so bitter about Duke because, you know, my father paved the way for all these great black athletes that Duke, has had that won national championships for them and all that stuff and they've never recognized them so it i think it's a process and i think just like with the coaches some of them are more the schools are more conscious than others um and you'd be surprised which ones mississippi with coolidge ball they honored him years ago and he never left uh oxford 
He has, he has a printing business right there. He's from Mississippi. So he felt comfortable. A lot of the schools recruited within, like now within the region, but especially black players. And in the SEC, almost every single first player made all conference. They had to be good. They had to be good and they had to be good students. It was another thing kind of like Jackie Robinson. You're going to have to turn the other cheek. In this case, turn the other cheek and be a good student. Uh, Charles Scott at, at North Carolina was an academic All-American, but he was the only one of all the first ACC players who made All-Conference. He was the, he was the model for uh, Michael Jordan, who was growing up in North Carolina at the same time. Uh, and for... Charles Scott, the model was Elgin Baylor. I don't know if you guys remember Elgin Baylor, but he was mm -hmm. one of the first players I ever saw who just could hang there in the air. And you'd go, how's he doing that? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that's such a huge point too, is that not only was there the, <clears throat> you have to be a lead out of athletics side to be taken seriously, but you also had to make your stamp in, in the classroom as well and prove yourself there. So, I mean, really just about all day, every day while these guys were, were going through this experience. And, and I think that's why your book is so important. Um, and I mean, all our listeners, you should really take the time to read this because, um, it's so important to know that I wanted to get your opinion on what you see right now in college sports. Of course, the NIL is a huge point of discussion and it's, it's kind of this new frontier. Do you see more pros than cons or kind of however you'd like to take this question? I'd just be curious to see, uh, to hear your thoughts on NIL in general. I think it's great. I, I think, um, you know, just in the last few years, getting rid of the sit out a year if you transfer is like the end of the reserve clause in baseball when, when Kurt Flood uh, sued to be free. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and along with that has come the recognition that why shouldn't you be able to earn, earn money for what you do? Why is everybody else getting to earn money on your name, image, and likeness, but not you? So, now, I think we have a, a, a shuffle going on because I'm not, sure, I'm not sure anybody knows where this is going to wind up. There are court cases that's, that are getting increasing support saying that athletes are employees. Well, what's that, what's that going to do? And how does that square with Title IX? And, um, you know, why shouldn't every athlete get a take if i mean the number three earner in nil is uh, olivia dunn who's a female gymnast at lsu i think that's great uh you know there's all these football players who aren't making as much money as she is for whatever reasons it, it it's a it's changed the dynamic of who of equality if you will um as far as who gets what and I think that um, I think there are going to be more changes. I personally think that the uh, the power conferences, because they're so desperate for money, will take over the NCAA men's tournament. And when they do, then the NCAA, in order to have enough money to operate, is going to really have to plug women's basketball. Uh, 
because that'll be their main product. And they use that money to run all their championships and to give the president of the NCA a $4 million salary or whatever it is. So all those things are in flux. And then if the NCA and the NBA decides to go back to 18 and go straight from high school to the pros, then players are going to have to work it out with somebody saying, okay, can I make more money in NIL if I do well in, in college or even high school, high school kids are making money like uh, a LeBron James son. He's doing perfectly well without doing being a pro. He's a pro in a different way. Yeah. Um, and all, all that is just percolating things. I don't, I think anybody who thinks they know what's going to happen is a little bit um, full of themselves because it's just not possible. There's too many moving parts right now, which is exciting. It's not frightening. Uh, hopefully some people who have good sense will come to the fore, but that doesn't always happen in the NCAA. No, completely true. Uh, Barry, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you very much for joining us. Can you please um, let our viewers and audience know where they can find other works of yours, um, any projects you're working on, if you're available on social media as well? Oh, I'm not a big social media person, I'm afraid. I do have a Facebook page, but I don't really ever check it. Um, I w mostly I do uh, something I used to do a while ago was do a fan's guide to ACC basketball. And I wrote something on every player at every school. Uh, and I used to do a lot of statistical analysis back, statistical analysis back before that was popular. And I still like to do that. So I do that for a, a site called uh, Duke basketball report. And I do, I, in fact, I just did one today, a chart about uh, when Duke, as on a winning streak going into the NCAA tournament, this team has nine in a row. Any Duke team that's had five or more wins in a row going into the NCAA gets at least to the final four. So we'll see. I, you know, past performance is uh, no indication of, cur of current achievement, but it, it, I like doing stuff like that. Still trying to look at the history and bring it up. And I did talk in that, uh, chart about Loyola uh, and Texas Western, I made it fit uh, because I'm, I studied history and, and if it's important to keep track of where we came from, especially yeah. when things start moving so fast, it really helps if, if you have, you're grounded in how you got where you are. No, 100%. Barry, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I appreciate your questions, too.